Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. Drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain. La da 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 dee. La da 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 da. Charleston was once the rage Thing, uh-huh. Jeannie Buffer is our newborn king, uh-huh. And the beat goes on. The beat goes on. The drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain. la da 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 The grocery stores are super modern. goes on Drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain la da 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 la da 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 Grandma's sitting chairs and rim on this Boys keep chasing girls the cars keep on going fast all the time. Mom still cries, hey buddy, have you got a dime? And the beat goes on. The beat goes on. Drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain. La da 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 dee. La da 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 da. And the beat goes on. Yes, the beat goes on. And the beat goes on. Well, good afternoon, everybody. 
It's a little after 5 o'clock on a Wednesday, and it's a perfect time to gather around the radio and have a cup of joe. Today we got a special blend, a, a rich brew unlike any other. We've got uh, two for the price of one today. I've got a very special guest with me, uh, somebody if you've been involved with the human solution for any length of time, going back at least five or six years, uh, you'll know who I'm talking about. This is one of the very first guys that we discovered back in, I guess it was probably 2013, 2012, we discovered that there was uh, some guys locked up in prison for life, for pot, and uh, kind of blew our minds at the time, still blows our minds. But we met this guy, George Martirano, and uh, he was in custody, and I can remember the very first time I talked to him, we had exchanged a letter or two, and uh, George is quite the wordsmith. He's a, he's a, a prolific writer and an author, a poet, and uh, he had sent, sent some uh, poems and some short stories and stuff we read, and him and I talked. He talked about... Uh, the healthcare system, and we talked about how he had this great idea for, uh, you know, releasing the, the prisoners that had been in for a long time once they got to a certain age and just let them go home because it doesn't make any sense to take care of them in prison, you know, all the, the cost of healthcare and all that. At the time, I thought, well, yeah, it doesn't make sense that there's any 80-year-old guys in prison to begin with, but um, especially not a nonviolent type. Anyways, George has been um, part of our family, part of our, our Human Solution family, a member the hard way, way back when, when we first started doing the membership the hard way. And uh, a couple years back, George got out. And it's not a fluke. It's not luck. It's not, uh, it wasn't Obama. It wasn't, um, it wasn't anybody's mercy. It was Years and years and years of hard work, um, some amazing stories. George, George has uh, uh, had an adventure on an airplane that he might tell us a little bit about where he, he saved some folks' life, uh, prevented a, a disaster or two. Um, he, he's, been, he's created um, educational programs inside the prison system. He's been teaching. He's been a counselor, um, and, and now that he's out, you know, you don't come out of prison for a week, a month, or a year without being changed. But imagine being locked up for, for 32 years. I, I met with somebody today. We were talking, you know, I took him around with me making some rounds. And we visited a shop, and uh, this young girl was there. And, you know, I told her, introduced him to, George, to her to George. And, and uh, you know, she was kind of blown away. And I thought, I said, yeah, how old are you? <laughs> she said she was... 24 or something like that. I said, imagine, imagine being in prison all your life, you know, what that would do to you. And most people I've ever known, I've known quite a few people that have been locked up, and uh, everybody comes out a little different, a little messed up, you know, whether you like it or not. The human spirit was not put on this earth to be put in a cage. It just wasn't. And every time we get put in a cage, it changes us. I got changed the first time I got put in a cage. It didn't take very long. And hell, the human solution probably wouldn't exist if I didn't get put in a cage. So if there's anything good 
about cages, I guess something like this can come out of it. But it's unusual for this to happen. Usually people get broken. Um, they get broken to a place where they cause harm to themselves and others and usually end up going back to the cage over and over again and create bad cycles. Anyways, George is here with me today. He's been spending the last few days with us, and he's going to be uh, with us tonight co-hosting our show. Uh, George, why don't you say hi to our to our audience here real quick. Hi, everybody. Here's a cup of Joe. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right, so if you guys are listening right now, first of all, let's uh, sort of bring out the how, how this show exists and how you can be on it. Right now, uh, we're on blogtalkradio.com. There's a link that's been bouncing around Facebook. You can click the link and watch from there. You can also call, pick up your phone, your cell phone, your landline, whatever. Call 646-929-2495. If you're listening, we also have two simulcast live streams going on Facebook. And if you see it, you know, please share it. Get it around there. Our audience has um, been increasing pretty much exponentially the last few weeks. And, uh, you know, the more people that listen to this, the more people participate, the more people get educated, inspired, and the sooner we're going to end Prohibition. That's what this is all about. So before we get going and talking about some stories uh, with with George, George has got a lot to say. He's a, he's a great wordsmith and a storyteller, and I don't want to uh, get in his way in any way, but I've got a few things I want to get into. Uh, we've got today... Uh, Becca Nichols sitting in the background. She's our treasurer, executive director. Um, she's the one who writes all of our press releases, and um, she's a big part of what makes the human solution work on a day-to-day -day basis. She keeps us compliant. She keeps our books in order, and uh, we wouldn't be the way we are without her. We got non-compliant Mary. A non-compliant Mary is an incredible woman. She's about three foot five and um, got a smile that goes from here to Nantucket. And this woman has overcome physical uh, hardships, emotional hardships, um, every kind of hardship you could imagine. And I've never met a person who has a better attitude than non-compliant Mary. Non-compliant Mary went up against the government. She had a case, I don't know, it was about a year ago. She was standing in court going toe-to-toe -to -toe just the way I did, just the way... George did and so many others, and uh, they, they blinked. She ended up beating these guys. And uh, now she's one of our board members, and she uh, is our screener. And I'm going to go up tomorrow evening on our, my way up to Oroville. I'm going to go visit her. I'm going to see her property for the first time. She gets to meet my wife in person. We got uh, Glenn Keeling from Ohio. He's one of our newest chapter coordinators. Um, he's got a case. I think he's got an update today. Hopefully he's got an update that says his gag order's been lifted and he can say anything he wants. Maybe they've dropped the case. I'm looking forward to hearing the update. And, of course, we've got Kathy Z on the line right now. Kathy Z is instrumental in our organization. She um, not once but twice <laughs> made it so that I could fight my case from this side of the wall rather than being uh, locked up. And... Uh, She's no small reason that I was able to keep fighting until I won. She's also a board member, and she's been one of uh, the Human Solutions' biggest supporters for, I don't know, it's been about six, seven years now. If you are listening to the show and you have a question for George, myself, something you want to share, 
an update, um, whatever it is, just call again, 646-929-2495. Now, George and I have been hanging out the last couple of days, and, uh, you know, George has been part of the human solution for a lot of years, but as so many people um, that get touched from the inside, from from custody, they don't really understand what the human solution is necessarily all about. They know that they get letters from people that are part of the human solution. Uh, they know that maybe somebody put some money on his books or, or um, you know, sent him something. Um, he knows that maybe maybe somebody even paid him a visit in person. That's certainly part of what we do. But a lot of people, especially people that, that um, you know, only see us from one side, they see us as a prison outreach organization, don't necessarily know what we're about. And then comes the ribbon. So if any of you are watching on the live stream, you're going to see this ribbon here. I wear mine right over my heart. It's a really important thing. I want to tell you guys a little story about the ribbon. I probably told it before, but I'll tell it again. <clears throat> about, I think it was 2010, it was before my trial, uh, before we were even the human solution, a bunch of us had gotten together and we put together a fundraiser for a guy named Ronnie Knowles. He had a federal case going on, and I had my state case, my first state case going on. We were trying to raise some money for uh, legal fees. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know each other. We just put the word out that says, who, who, who will help? And a bunch of people came forward. This is before everybody was doing the GoFundMe thing and before PayPal and all of this other stuff. If you wanted to earn money... Uh, if you wanted to raise money, you had to do it the old-fashioned way. You had to have a bake sale or a, a bingo game or, or put on a little event. So we put this event on, and we thought to ourselves, wouldn't it be neat if we could have something that everybody could wear that just united us? And so one of the people showed up with a bolt of green fabric, and they cut it in little ribbons, and um, everybody wore this little green armband. And it was just kind of cool. Everybody... You know, the volunteers wore it, the people, you know, it was, it was a symbol of solidarity. Well, shortly after that, um, we raised a little money, but we learned pretty quick we weren't very good fundraisers. We raised like 1200 bucks, and we probably put in a 400 hours of work. So you do the math, and we didn't make minimum wage doing this. But it was a great event, and people had a great time, and people came together. And afterward, when we figured out what we were going to do with the money, ultimately we filed the documents that turned into the human solution. But we thought about this, and we knew that we were going to be doing support in the courtrooms. And we said, you know, what should we do about this armband? We can't walk into a court with an armband. They're going to find that a little militant. They're going to, they're going to probably, you know, take umbrage at that. And uh, we decided at the time, you know, there was the, the wars going on in the Middle East, and everybody was wearing the ribbons. There was a ribbon for everything, that tie a yellow ribbon and all that stuff. So we said, you know, let's let's create a ribbon because people are embracing that symbol right now, and we ultimately came up with this green ribbon with the red cross. Well, let's talk about the green ribbon and the red cross. The green, that's pretty self-explanatory. We're all about the green. Um, but the Red Cross, you know, one person thought about putting a rose, one person thought about putting a, you know, a peace sign or a victory sign. But if you think about the human solution, the, the volunteer organization, what do we do? Somebody gets busted. They don't know who to call. They call us. We come running into their fire. 
We're like a first responder. We're a paramedic. We come running over to you. We say, how you doing? We check your vitals. We ask you about your case. We see how you're doing. We check your family situation. Do you have any support around you? You need bail. You need a lawyer. What is it that you need? We identify. We assess. We support you. We're like a first responder. Uh, when you see a Red Cross coming towards you, usually you feel good. It's a, it's a sign of, um, of help. Help is on its way. And that's what we are. We're help. So that's certainly one of the, uh, one of the reasons that this all came about. So what is the ribbon for? Uh, the ribbon's got a couple of different factors. Number one, probably first and most important, we wear it in court. Okay, so when you go to court, hopefully you'll never have to go to court, but if you do have to go to court, you'll find that it's a very one-sided, lonely place. Um, there's a thing called a bar. There's literally a bar, and it's a wooden uh, rail that the court's on one side and everybody else is on the other side. And if you're not a lawyer, an officer of the court or a defendant, you don't get to go on that side of the bar. Or if you're a witness that gets called up, everybody else has to stay on this side of the bar. Typically on this side of the bar are all the defendants, a few lawyers, um, sometimes uh, law enforcement, and every once in a while a handful of supporters. So when we show up and we teach people to gather support, um, we teach people to show support, we show up, we're dressed up in our Sunday best, uh, we're alert, we don't have our cell phones on, we're respectful, we oftentimes bring a notepad and a pen and paper, we're taking notes, we're watching, we're attentive, and we have our green ribbon on. Oftentimes the defendant will wear a green ribbon. I actually made my lawyer wear one. Since you're going to represent me, represent me. So um, there was no question that these ribbons are here with that defendant, and when the people around determine or, or discover that this is a nonviolent case with no victim and no victim's family and it's about a plan, oftentimes it makes sense why all these people are standing here to support. So that's the first thing and probably maybe one of the most important reasons why we wear this ribbon. The second reason I wear this ribbon is when I'm out and walking around and somebody sees me wearing this ribbon, and they know what this ribbon's about, they come find me. They say, hey, you're one of those guys. Hey, I got a question. I got a, I got a, I got a case. I know a friend who has a case, or, or how do I get involved? So that's the second reason. It's kind of a flag. You know, you wave a flag. Why? Because you want people to know who you are. You're driving a ship across the ocean. You wear a flag so people know who you are, your friend or a foe. The third reason that we have this is it stands out. And people will ask if they don't know, what is this for? When somebody says, what's the ribbon about? And, hell, I've had TSA agents ask me, what's the ribbon about? And I tell them, I says, we're a civil rights organization. And we support humanist civil rights. And we support victims of the drug war. We support people that have been locked up over a plant, nonviolent offenses. And, you know, we stand up and, and uh, offer support to these folks. And people... Very seldom. I don't know. In, in all the years I've been wearing this ribbon, I really can't think of any significant time when somebody uh, had a negative response to it. You know, sometimes they wrinkle their nose and walk away, but almost always somebody will say, oh, interesting, or, or, or they'll want to know more. But virtually never have I had a situation where somebody says, oh, well, that's terrible. So that's it. That's what the ribbon's about. That's what the human solution's about. 
The Human Solution International is a 501c3 federally recognized nonprofit, which puts us in the status of all the major nonprofits out there. We're an international organization. We're recognized by the federal government. We can offer a tax write-off for any donation. Somebody can donate a bus, and we can give them a tax write-off for the full value of that bus. Somebody can donate money. Somebody can donate a computer. They can donate anything, and we can give you a tax write-off for that donation. And only legitimate 501c3s can do that. Uh, we can also satisfy uh, court-ordered community service hours. And this is something that I've always thought was a secret weapon. Um, not enough people have done it, but some have. If you have a pot case, and for whatever reason, or any case for that matter, but if, if, if you get sentenced, whether it's from a plea deal or a conviction, and part of your sentence includes a community service hours, and many times they do, the court typically will have a list of approved uh, charities and organizations, but that doesn't mean that we can't get added to it. And if you submit us as an organization to satisfy your hours, so far only one court has rejected us, and many have accepted it. So I've signed up personally over 500 hours um, from four different states, Arizona, Nevada, California, Washington, and Texas. I have satisfied hours um, in, in different courts, state, not federal, but I don't think federal gives you com community service, but uh, state courts all over the, all over the place. Uh, we can also accept an internship. There's all kinds of things that, that if somebody wanted to participate, uh, they could. We're an all-volunteer organization, just so everybody knows. There's not a single person that's ever worked or volunteered or been part of the Human Solution that ever received a dime as a salary or stipend or anything. We don't get paid for what we do. The secret weapon here, folks, if you've ever volunteered your time, you get paid back 100 times in blessings just from doing it. Make the world a better place. See what happens. You'll see. You'll come back and you go, holy cow, this is amazing. I'm part of changing history. You know, think if you were back in the times when they were uh, 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 defeating prohibition, alcohol prohibition, or the suffragette movement, or uh, the civil rights when, when, when we were making some of the main strikes out there. The people that were part of that are, are heroes. Well, we're doing it here right now. Uh, George Martorano's a hero from some of the things he's done. Uh, every single person, in my opinion, that steps up reaches outside themselves. It doesn't necessarily, we don't do this to benefit ourselves, we do this to make the world better. We do this for our kids and our grandkids and their grandkids. And when we're done, it's a legacy. We will leave a world where people no longer get locked up for pot or any other plant, for God's sake. So that's what's going on here, folks. We welcome everybody to the show. We welcome everybody to the organization. And uh, let's get this thing started. George, um, you've been out now for a little over two years. A little over two years. Why don't you share with us, you know, I know you've probably told this story a thousand times, but after being incarcerated for 32 years, what was it like to go outside the wall for the first time? Well, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a sunny, hot day, uh, October in, uh, in Florida, and, uh, and uh, well, that was on a Monday. Actually, I knew I was going to be released uh, 7.30 Friday evening on the 2nd, and uh, you know, it was uh, 
it was like wave after wave of uh, not big shocks, but minor shocks, and uh, you know what to do. Uh, how am I going to spend uh, the next two days? And then it uh, hit me how I was going to spend the next two days. Two old timers in their 80s uh, uh, procrastinating, uh, give me, getting me their paperwork so I can help them uh, with their uh, it's called two point reduction motion, uh, which came out came into law. Uh, a few years back, where you actually get, uh, you can get off a life sentence down to 30, and you had to meet the, the legal criteria. So uh, what I did uh, Saturday and Sunday was actually uh, get uh, these motions ready, the first drafts typed up, mailed out, because uh, I didn't want to leave these two old-timers uh, old uh, without anything uh, at least pending in court. And then uh, I remember Monday morning, uh, you know, going across the prison compound, and I, I put these two legal envelopes in the legal got to put legal envelopes in the legal mailbox for these uh, two older gentlemen. Uh, sad to say, they both both passed away and incarcerated, didn't make it. But uh, my soul told me I had to do this for them, to get their motions in, and I did. And then when I put it in the Finally, put it in the legal mailbox. It really hit me because it was eight in the morning, and uh, sooner or later I was going to be called to R and D uh, for release. And I just, you know, I backed up against the wall and basically just, uh, you know, choked up because I had finally had time to think about it. Because, like I said, the two prior days I was busy getting up. Uh, on the weekends, it's tough getting stuff done. You know, stuff typed, copied and things like that. Uh, so I got that done, and then uh, and uh, that was the day. It was the day. And I uh, and, uh, had family. Uh, my lawyer and family were waiting in the parking lot, and my lawyer said he'd never seen anything like it because, you know, in prison they have a perimeter roving guards. They have these perimeter vehicles, uh, security, security vehicles that go round and round and round 25 hours a day three different shifts, and, the, and the, actually the security uh, vehicles with uh, the guards in it were, were uh, actually uh, pulling up to the parking lot, uh, beeping their horns, all waiting for my, my release. Imagine that. Even staff uh, was uh, static about uh, my relief. So then uh, I finally get into a, a free car after being chained in every uh, hard vehicle and plane and whatnot you could think of always chained up. You know, I get in, finally get into a vehicle unchained and uh, as I'm moving along, I start getting these things in my hands. I had one on my left and one on my right. They were called cell phones. You know. They weren't invented. Uh, they weren't invented when I went away. And in prison, if you get caught with one as a contraband illegal, you're actually... Uh, it's considered an escape device, and you can enhance your sentence. In other words, you can get two to five years tacked on your sentence. So um, I'm in the car, and I'm talking to the world, you know, one of my left hand and right hand. So and then uh, it's still uh, it's still been uh, a roller coaster ride for me. You you can uh, you're never you're basically I my personal opinion with my personal life you're never the same again. You can never. Never be uh, the person that you really were. You, of course, you, you're a gentleman and you try to touch people's lives and help people's lives. But after 32 plus years and you know lose the loss of uh, 
several loved ones and not count the five years in solitary. So you're never you're never the same again. But uh, <clears throat> I like to touch on. Uh, this is Craig calling. Excuse us, folks. Uh, yeah. All right. So George can't talk to Craig. So we're gonna just uh, move forward as though he's not here right now. This is a friend of ours from prison for uh, marijuana. Craig Cecil, how are you doing today, my friend? Hello, Joe. It's a little cold here in Indiana, but I'm doing as well as can be expected. I am not going to tell you what it's like here in California, but I'm wearing short pants and a short sleeve shirt, and uh, it's been probably about... Well, I guess I, that, that makes me telling you, doesn't it? <laughs> it's been crazy warm. You wouldn't even think it was winter. Well, I think it was a high of 14 outside today. Oh, jeez. You know? <laughs> oh, my God. No, I think it was a it was a low of uh, probably 70 out here, <laughs> maybe 65. <laughs> well, but Paris, California has been in the national news here lately. It's not the good way, though. Yeah, you know, California's always been a bit of a a bit of a rebel state. Um I I did an interview uh last week right after the show actually and uh, a lady called me up from a, a newspaper in Long Beach where my case was at and she asked me some questions. She said um you know, California is, is being sort of defiant against the federal government right now. And she says, uh, I've been asking people, you know, um, city officials, um, owners of cannabis or, um, businesses and whatnot about, you know, Jeff Sessions and his statements. And she said, nobody seems to be afraid. And I says, well, you know, California has been rebellion, rebelling against the Fed since the, um, you know, the, the speed limit laws and, you know, we're establishing these sanctuaries and, and, you know, 20 years ago we passed a law saying we wanted people to have access to cannabis, even though it was federally illegal. And now that we passed a recreational law and, and we've made it virtually decriminalized, um, we're not going to stop now. And she was a little shocked that I, I clarified that position. But she did quote me. She gave me more time in this article than she did the city officials she interviewed. So I thought at least she did a pretty decent job, although she did refer to my dispensary as an illegal one, and I said if I was illegal, they would have found me guilty, and I would have served a sentence, but since they did miss my case, one might think it wasn't so illegal, now wouldn't you, but so be it. Anyway, so what's uh, what, what are you hearing on that side? Uh, well, one thing I wanted to uh, tell you about is that if you remember about a year and a half ago, I told you that the Bureau of Prisons was considering allowing a whole bunch of the officers to carry pepper spray on their belt. Right, right. We did a letter-writing campaign about that. Well, unfortunately, last year they did start doing that. And uh, last Thursday, uh, there was a fight between some people in the middle of the cell block. And uh, apparently there were some other people around them because they were from two different groups. There was a few people pushing other people just to make sure, you know, friends of friends didn't jump in the fight. 
But uh, apparently they saw from the video cameras and the fight was over, but then a whole bunch of officers come streaming in the door. Well, they streamed in the door and there was no fight or anything to be seen. So a whole bunch of them just pulled out pepper spray and started indiscriminately uh, spraying yeah, people. Geez. People that had nothing to do with the fight weren't even in the area of the fight. Just so there's a bunch of people with, you know, uh, problems with their asthma now, with all kinds of problems. And really, you've got a whole lot of people angry at the officers now that, you know, they almost want to get revenge that if an officer pulls that stuff out on them, he's going to, you know, physically try to stop the officers. So really, they're going to get officers assaulted that otherwise would not be assaulted. It's a real bad plan, and they're, they're already using it not to defend themselves but rather just to hurt inmates because they want to hurt inmates. Yeah, that is unfortunate. And you forecasted that from the beginning when we were talking about it a year ago. Um, that was what your concern was, was that that might happen. And, you know, unfortunately these uh, prison guards oftentimes are are not the, I don't know, not the finest upstanding folks. I mean, they're people, everybody's people, but um, I just, Sometimes the wrong kind of person gravitates towards a job like that. And when you get a opportunity to hurt somebody that can't hurt you back, uh, unfortunately, some people take advantage of that. Well, what do you think we can do about that? Is it too late to, uh, you know, to protest and 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 you know call that out, or is it just in place and going to stay that way? Well, so far we put in complaints here, and I, I want to see where they go, but. Uh... Really, I, I see it escalating uh, into something, you know, much worse than, I mean, really should have been foreseeable. As, as you said, it, it was foreseeable to me, and I actually heard the fight start. I walked out, and I was standing at the rail, you know, looking down onto it on the main floor. So I saw everything unfold, and it, it was horrible just watching. I would say half of the officers walked in, and just because they wanted to hurt people, they ran around spraying them. The other half were just scared, and they just sprayed just the spray, I think. <laughs> well, maybe this is a uh, maybe this is an opportunity for us to put a story together. You know, sometimes just simply uh, telling a story about what's going on inside. If people don't know. They're not going to know unless somebody tells them. Uh, maybe it's a good opportunity. I got Becca listening in the background here. Maybe we can crank a story together. Um, if you can send me some details about what happened, I, you know, it can't hurt. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll get it out there. Okay, I can definitely do that. I can send it to your, to your email, to your blog. But it was, you know, really unfortunate that officers, you know, came. Some of them only took, like, two steps into the housing unit. They couldn't have seen anything, you know, on toward going, going wrong. And they actually had to chase people down to spray them. Oh, jeez. Wow. I mean, I, I watch people that, you know, especially, you know, people that had breathing problems or asthma. I mean, that stuff really sets them up. Yeah, I, I work with uh, capsaicin powder in some of the products I make, and I have to protect myself when I add small amounts of it to the, you know, to the salves and things that I make. And even if I put goggles on, gloves, and everything, and I wash up as soon as I take it off, it never fails. My eyes are burning, my, my you know, I get an itch in my throat, I'm sneezing and coughing, and it's it's potent stuff, and that's not even putting it in the air, that's trying not to put it in the air. 
So this is all under the new warden, right? I mean, this is this is under the new guard. Yes, yes. The new there is a new warden here, both a complex warden and a individual prison warden. And my uh, thinking is, is we ended up being locked down for well from Thursday through Sunday over it. But I. There really was no concern that, you know, that any of us were in jeopardy if they let us out. It wasn't like a gang war that might, you it was know, just a personal them. beef. Pardon? It was just a personal beef, a couple of guys. Yeah, I mean, it was, from what I understand, an argument over a bowl of chips that somebody wouldn't share. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, hey, listen, Craig, I don't know. I know we've talked about this before. But um, in the past, when they had that legislation that that was allowing for that two-point reduction, what what happened with you um, with regards to that? Um, actually, my case is still in the court of appeals, and it hasn't been answered yet. It, it was filed in December of uh, 2016, and I'm still awaiting an answer out of the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, and, uh, you had that. recap on that. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, then. Uh, on my clemency bid, as you know, you and others uh, got thousands of letters sent to the White House on my behalf in favor of uh, a grant of clemency for me. And uh, that put me in a fantastic situation. And the last step in a clemency grant is the uh, Office of a Pardon Attorney has to get comments from the case prosecutor as to, you know, whether the person, if they release them, would be dangerous and things of that nature. Well, that would have happened about August of 2016. On August 15th of, tw of uh, 2016, the prosecutor and a lawyer I'd never heard of went to court, and they claimed that this uh, lawyer represented me, and I had approved them getting an order from the court dismissing my clemency petition but that they would reduce my sentence to 30 years. Well, of course, the, the judge granted it because it sounded logical on his face, and, uh, you know, according to this lawyer who claimed to represent me, I'd agreed to it. Of course, I didn't agree to it. Well, the clemency petition was dismissed, and these two lawyers went back to the court three weeks later on September 7th. They told the judge, oh, we just made this horrible mistake, this lawyer... You know, had some sort of confusion. She didn't actually represent Greg Cecil. So we just need you to put his life sentence back on the gun. <laughs> That's about the point that I found out about the whole thing, and I've had it on, on hold and on appeal ever since. So I'm trying to see what I'm asking the Court of Appeals to do is try to make up for, you know, my lost opportunity for clemency. I mean, I was in a better position than many people, and, and a bit over two-thirds of the people serving life for drugs uh, in the feds that had been approved by the uh, clemency uh, commission, they, they're home now. So, I mean, I had a good odds of being approved and going home under the clemency project, and uh, that's the kind of relief I'm asking for, and uh, I'm just waiting for the court to decide what they're going to do. You probably had more public support than anybody else that was petitioning for clemency. I, I can imagine there wasn't anybody that had more, more, you know, overt support um, than you had. That was, 
that was just a, a downright dirty pool what they were doing. Uh, is there anything that can be done? I mean, is there anything that we could do, or, or you know, you're just waiting for the appeal court to, to, to pick it up or, or rule on it? Is there something that can be checked on, or is there anything we can do? Uh, I don't think there's really anything to, to do other than wait for the court. And, uh, as you know, I'm kind of anxious about, you know, as much ex exposure as I can get. Because I'm hoping to try to keep the court honest. And I think if it's out in the open and people know about it, it, it helps keep a court a bit more honest. They, they won't try to come up with some sort of excuse to these lawyers from, you know, my allegations of wrongdoing. As you well, can tell, I, I have a bit of contempt over our federal courts. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's certainly well-deserved. I, I I haven't seen a lot of people get a fair shake in the federal uh, court system, that's for sure. Well, I, I like I said, if there's anything you've been putting this story out um, can be helpful, you know I'm, I'm, I'm there, to, there to help make it happen. Well, thank you. And like I said, the, the assistance of... So many people through the Human Solution have been so helpful for for me, both current and past members. Because uh, there's, there's so many people that are leading so many different groups that really came to be involved in the whole marijuana movement and the prisoner advocacy uh, effort, you know, through the Human Solution, even if they're not, you know, but still associated with the Human Solution. So. The Human Solution has been a catalyst for so much for me and for so many others. I, I just ask everybody to to keep at it. <laughs> well, I I think that, you know, the way that we're doing this now, uh, this show is getting a whole lot more exposure, and, and I think that I'm already getting people kind of sending me inquiries. What can we do? So I'm, I'm going to talk to the team tomorrow. We, we do a executive meeting um, Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I'm going to talk to the team about putting sort of a call to action together. We did it before. I remember we were at the High Times Cup gathering, getting letters written on your behalf, and I know we personally, just the headquarters chapter, got 100 letters in a day, um, you know, and, and, and we got them not just written, but um, mailed. I mean, we had the envelopes ready, the addresses ready. All they had to do was put their address on. And we mailed them for them, so I knew that they, I knew that they, they were sent because I personally sent them, um, and that's something that we can do. I'm going to be going on a little road trip in the next tomorrow afternoon, and I'm going to be talking to some uh, NorCal members and uh, uh, members of some of the other chapters. So I'll see what I can do to put together another another little campaign here. This is ridiculous. Um, you know, of all the people that are that are locked up in federal prison, I, I, every time I tell people about your story, uh, it, it, their jaw drops and they just they, they can't believe it. There's your first beep, Craig. I'm gonna turn it back over to you. Okay, that's the second beep. But I uh, just want to thank you for uh, for everybody's effort to shine a light behind you know what happens behind the wall here, behind the fence. Because unfortunately, there, there's nobody to monitor these people. There's nobody that comes in and audits this checks that the prisoners are being treated correctly. There's there's no oversight here at all. It really it Damn it. You know, we try to time it to where um Craig gets the last word and, and I try to always give it to where he has the time to say goodbye. And usually he's in the middle of talking 
um, and, and doesn't get a chance. He gets cut off before he gets a chance to say goodbye. And he can't call back. Uh, he can't call right back. It's just how it is. Uh, George, I know um, you're not able to talk to Craig, so we, well, well, we had to pretend like you weren't here. Well, you know, I apologize. It's because we got all these situations. You know, the uh, sad part about it, 32-plus years incarcerated, you know, rules every day, which I obeyed. I had to obey because uh, I had to, uh, you know, allow them to uh, to make me continue as a mentor and educator, which I did uh, in many, many lights and fields and ways. And that, uh, just for a quick apology out to Greg, you know, I would love to say hello, but again, it's uh, we broke, break the rules on him on the inside and me on the outside. And, uh, you know, I uh, go back in time with the human solution situation. This gentleman sitting next to me, you know, uh, as, uh, as many uh, uh, have been languishing. And incidentally, I like to uh, inject this, you know, uh, my stories are interesting, and I guess you can say they're intriguing, but uh, better men than me have died in prison. I want to I wanna inject that. Anyway, uh, some years back, uh, you know, uh, you, uh, if you want to keep fighting, you want to keep fighting. Uh, you realize is uh, there's limited uh, there's limited help around you when you're in a prison uh, setting. So you have to uh, you have to learn out about community connections. You have to learn uh, how to write letters in a proper way, and uh, which I taught that I taught classes on community connection. You know how to become bigger and better than yourself, and you do that by getting assistance from. Uh, the outside world, and that's where uh, Joe and the Human Solutions came in, and uh, they did a tremendous, tremendous job. And uh, you know, now fast forward today, the relationship's still going, the help's still going. Uh, I'm out here in the California, north north of LA, uh, south of LA, doing a lot of public speaking, a lot of good people, a lot of positive meetings. I'm staying with uh, a wonderful woman. Uh, they call her Kathy Z, and then. Uh, uh, I hiked over here to uh, do this uh, this great radio show. So, you know, from reaching out in the cell and getting the, uh, people to listen and 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 want to help, but it's also, you know, you become friends. It becomes a friendship, uh, a bonding. So, you know, we want that to grow and you want that to grow and you want that to grow. And that's all you can do because there's a saying, I say, you know, rumors come and go, but still I like to know why they hate us so. When I mean hate us so, I mean, you know, the people in the cannabis uh, industry, uh, the cannabis way of life, you know, I got life, no parole uh, for marijuana, first ever, first ever in America, and I was a nonviolent first offender, <coughs> and my guidelines were 48 to 52 months. They wanted to be cruel. Uh, they could have took me uh, twice out of them, which would have been a little under 15 years, but no, uh, they wanted to be Dragonian, and they wanted to be monsters. And uh, for some reason, uh, I have it was it had nothing to do with my case. They had some other kind of uh, 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 prosecutorial agenda, judicial agenda, political agenda, and it all came down on me like a ton of bricks. Best thing I can do, basically, with my sins in the prisons I was at, at the worst of the worst five years in solitary, you know, you try to concentrate on your appeal, you try to concentrate, you know, how to get out, but 
I was in prison. You know, my concentration was on staying alive. When you when you're trying to stay alive, you sort of like forget uh, about appealing something in hard copy, which is black and white, which is anything hard copy, black white is the power of America, and always was and always will be. But uh, that's another factor they throw at you. Some of the situations you get an awful lot of time, and you're in these prisons and you're trying to exist and you. You can't you can't focus on uh, how to get out through the courts and uh, and I had I had situations of you know as years went by ladies and gentlemen I became a, a great educator and and and, and mentor uh, I used the word great uh, because it was self induced I I created that myself and uh, and uh, as the years go by uh, I would have these uh, very bad institutions penitentiaries. I would have classrooms, lifestyle change classes, how to become better uh, in your prison programming, how to become better if you ever get released. And I would have young men in my class that had life sentences or equivalent to it. And if you were new in my classroom, I used to tell you, uh, you know, uh, if you want me to help you with your case, stay after class. And there was always three or four and stood after the class. New students, you know, my classes went anywhere from 10 to 12 weeks. And uh, I would go down the, the row with these young men. Uh, life sentences, uh, 80 or 90 years, it's basically the same thing. And uh, I would say, okay, uh, who has their paperwork? And uh, there'd be five, six of these guys in front of me. Not, they didn't even have paperwork. And what I say about paperwork is your courtroom documents, your courtroom, they call them minutes. And you got to have your courtroom documents, your courtroom minutes. Or you can never fight your case. You can never get out. Then you have to have what you call your docket sheet. And your docket sheet shows you all your courtroom appearances and what happened. So I would have these, uh, I'm talking about years and years, every class, I would have these, uh, these young guys and... Uh, they had no way how to start getting, creating the legal arguments and fight how to get out. They didn't even have any paperwork. They didn't even have a docket sheet. So I then we put them with, with another uh, individual or individuals would start writing letters to the courts and at least get them their docket sheet and get them their courtroom documents so they can try, try to get out. Because if you don't have those documents, you don't get out. And what happens is when you've got public defenders, ladies and gentlemen, which is by tens of thousands, tens of thousands in the state and the feds, after your sentence, they're gone. You know, their, their, their job is done. They have a line of guys they have to start same situations, try to defend them. So they don't pay attention to uh, getting your paperwork. So then these guys get designated and shipped out, and they have no paperwork. Now, times that by the thousands, thousands. And that's what's going on around America. And, uh, you know, a lot of these guys, they, some of them have burned their bridges. Or some of their families are so poor they can't help them. And that's how, since uh, Bureau of Prisons, I went into the Bureau of Prisons in 1983. I was cuffed and, uh, and actually uh, thrown away. Uh, there was 23,000 when I got out. Uh, 32 plus years later, it was almost a quarter of a million. So, and uh, and all the states have, all your your states have increased. So we, we created something that I labeled 
a label in America called the fourth world. The fourth world meaning uh, they, we created another world with incarceration. And the numbers uh, are growing and still growing. And uh, I believe things are steadying getting more callous, and, you know, uh, you know, guys like me and Joe and other advocates, we understand the situation. We understand that uh, everyone has uh, uh, their own problems. We understand that, you know, the bills come coming through the mail slot, and it's hard for you to get involved in advocacy, but you can get involved. We're not, some people, lives are so hard that, you know, they, they, you really can't travel, advocate work. They don't even have a stamp to write a letter in advocate work. But you can, ladies and gentlemen, is just speak. If you speak to your neighbor, if you speak to someone at the store, in church, just by speaking and with some intelligent kind of words that, you know, especially these people with the cannabis, you know, people people languishing like Greg, languishing in prison for a drug that uh, does not harm, does not harm. I was riding in the car today. And uh, this happened more than once since I've been home, ladies and gentlemen, more than once. Uh, I've been riding in the car today, and a nice young man, 41 years old, got his life together, had a little business. Uh, some demon demon caught him at the wrong time, and he overdosed. He overdosed. So since I'm home, uh, I have given, uh, short time I'm home, I have given two, two eulogies. To young guys, young guys, uh, and in my neighbor, my neighborhood in, uh, in Philadelphia is sort of like Renner's Village. A lot of eateries, a lot of restaurants, you know, a lot of a lot of things for a lot of people to do. So you meet young people. They work in all these places, these eateries. Very nice people. And then you walk in one day, and this this one particular uh, Frankie, uh, where's Frankie? Dead. Nicest guy. Had a great smile. So, uh, you know, that's going on. That's going, this opiate, this opiate uh, demon, this monster that's killing so many, so many. But cannabis people, marijuana doesn't do that. Still has never that. killed anybody. And uh, it doesn't I, even know how. Amen. I, I was languishing in all those years for, for, uh, uh, for pot, weed, cannabis, marijuana, whatever you want to call it. And... Uh, I seen, actually lost count how many people with violent cases, murderers, stuff like that were walking out. We're walking out, walking out, and uh, I have to I have to give a lot of credit for uh, some uh, some very good people with the Bureau of Prisons. I have to give them credit because these are people that knew me as a person. They knew my file, and uh, I stayed about when I had about 25 years in. Uh, which was the old law, if you, if you was 25 years in jail, you, they got you out the door. Old mur murderers, you got out the door. So a lot of staff after had 25 years, and, you know, they did the best they could with the little power they had because, you know, they don't have power as the warden or the judge, but they did an awful lot to help me as far as documenting all the, uh, the, the lifestyle change cases. They did. Like reentry, we all hear the word reentry. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I invented I reentry for the Bureau of Prisons. I created reentry at a certain program at a unit, federal uh, institution in Florida. I actually created it, and it went on today. It's still, it's still 
it's still there. I believe it's still there, but with this administration, uh, I don't know how they're looking at reentry. I don't know if they're putting the dollars in the right place because we, in order to put an individual <coughs> back on society, you have to pay attention to his rehabilitation, his way of thinking. You know, uh, he or she's way of thinking as far as a prisoner. So you have to pay attention to that, and that that all has to be funded though. But it just doesn't end. It's always it's always a work in process, a work in process. Am I right, Joe? Oh, you're absolutely right. The thing of it is, you know, one of the reasons we play this song uh, when we get started, the beat goes on. It's a it's a constant drum beat. Uh, if we stop beating the drum, people forget. And you know, Craig always says at the end of his conversation, you know, thank you for shining a light in a dark place. And um, we we got that idea a long time ago that we actually were we had a newsletter a long time ago called the Light Bulb. I don't know if you ever got a copy of it that we had taken. So. We did a couple of the episodes, but the whole thought was the light bulb. I always thought it was kind of brilliant. Is number one, the light bulb is like that epiphany. You become aware of, oh, my God, there's this horrible injustice going on. Bing, maybe I can do something about it. But number two, incarceration is a dark place, no matter what it is. If it's a state prison, if it's a uh, county holding cell, if it's a, a federal uh, dorm or a, or, a, or a pod or a, or, or a cell or, or, or solitary, it's a dark place. They specifically don't have sunlight in these places. They're dark on purpose and to bring light into a dark place is hope. Hope is the thing that keeps us alive. It keeps our spirit going. You know, George is a, a, an amazing person, was able to keep that spirit going inside of him, um, in my opinion, with just sheer guts and will and, 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 and vision. But most people, and I say most people, not, not flippantly, most people don't have that. Most people lose hope. Most people... If they don't have somebody handed to them or, or uh, bring it to them or, or, or encourage them, most people don't have what it takes to remain hopeful in a, in a dismal, hopeless place. So that was part of this whole thing. And one thing I found when it comes to volunteers and advocacy work, if you're not continually moving, you know, motion begets motion, um, objects at rest, remain at rest. And when we stop moving, when we stop when we stop advocating, when we stop shouting from the rooftops, when we stop doing this show, when we stop writing our, our letters, when we stop uh, writing articles, when we stop the message, people forget almost instantly. And if we were to stop for six months, people would not remember who we were. It's just that way. It's just like so so it's really important. I wanna I wanna bring up a thing and then I'll I'll, I'll turn it back over to you. Uh, every Tuesday and Thursday, the Human Solution has an executive director meeting. And we've, for the longest time, it was just the, the, you know, the core team that would get on these calls. And if somebody had a case or, or you know, a project that we needed to address, we would bring others into it. But we decided we have these three new chapters, and I'm so excited that we've got, you know, a bunch of new people excited on the East Coast. We've got two East Coast chapters and one most furthest West Coast chapter. We've got Hawaii, we've got New York, and we've got Ohio all, all lighting up, you know. And uh, so I said, you know, let's, let's invite these guys to the, to the core meeting. And um, this last Thursday, um, Pete Gapel, the one of the chapter coordinators from the New York chapter, came up with this idea. 
And we were thinking about uh, Dolores Halbin um, with the Nurses Cannabis Association um, came up with the idea last week about putting up billboards. And I said, well, I think it's a great idea. Bring it to the table. Let's all sit around the table and talk about it. How do we make a billboard happen? Because that's part of our mission, messaging and, and, and education support. And um, he came up with this idea about um, how come? Hashtag how come? You know, that you got the why or me too for these people who've been uh, sexually assaulted and, and supporting, um, you know, this these travesties that are becoming uh, uncovered in a in a sort of hidden society of, of of show business and whatnot. But how come? How come people are still getting locked up for pot? How come prohibition still exists? How come? My tax dollars are being spent to prosecute a pot case and, and, and execute a raid instead of making sure that we got a mental hospital or a, a substance abuse program or a road or electricity in Puerto Rico. How come we're not doing things right? How come? And that hashtag how come is a campaign that we've just launched last week. You probably see it floating around social network. We're asking on the website, T-H-S-I-N-T-L, .org, we have a, a send us your how come. Uh, ask us your question. What is it that you get that maybe not everybody gets? When you start having these questions start coming up to the surface and people start talking about it, like you said, it doesn't take you a nickel to have a conversation with your friend. It doesn't take a nickel to just start talking. I mean, some of us talk a lot. <laughs> some of us talk incessantly. But not everybody does. And some of these people that are a little shy but 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 thinkers. You know, they think about these things, but, but they never let it out. They never share it with their neighbor. When enough people start talking about this, it incites people to be moved by it. And whether you're moved by anger, frustration, or hope, or just the need to change something, it doesn't matter what moves you, but we need you to be moved. The message is, is, is the fuel. We're the engine. We need to be fueled. We need to move this thing forward. We are changing history with this. We need to finish the job, folks. We need to finish it. We need to end prohibition entirely. It's not passing a law here or passing a law there. It's changing the way we think. It's changing the way the jurors think. It's changing the way law enforcement thinks. It's changing the way the prosecutors think, changing the way judges think. We need to change it. This needs to be no longer a crime on any level. And it's going to take enough of us to change the public sentiment, and, but we have that power. If each one of you that are listening, talk to one person next week, just one. I issue a challenge. Talk to one person that you don't know, that you haven't talked to before about something that has to do with this, this, this topic. I don't care what it is. Open the conversation up. Did you know? How come they're still spending tax dollars and locking people up for nonviolent crimes? How come... I can't grow as many plants as I want. Who cares what plants they are? Petunias, radishes, or cannabis. What does it matter? Those plants are all the same. They don't know they're different. How come I can't put cannabis in my body the way I want to? As much of it as I want to. Any way I want to. How come I can't do that without it being a crime in certain places? How come? So pay attention. How come is coming to you. And we need you to share your idea. This is a many-faceted, many-colored problem with so many 
answers, so many solutions, and you can be a part of the solution simply by participating in the conversation. So George, what do you think about that? That one just came up. Well, that was good, but uh, now we're going to get down to the show. Uh, incidentally, ladies and gentlemen, some people may know, may not know, I'm a storyteller, so I'm going to start injecting some stories now. The reason is, the stories is the, uh, for strength, uh, you know, feel into the story, get your strength, and from your strength, I need you to go out and uh, do the best you can with the little you have to help uh, human solutions. Uh, Joe mentioned a prison that is a dark place. Of back in the, in the 80s, uh, certain prison, Lewisburg prison, I don't know if you heard that, very old prison, very gray, gray most of the year, the clouds are gray, dismal, and they have a sub-basement, they have a sub-basement of cells nicknamed the submarine. Actually, they were cells way underground, and they had this thick mash, real thick steel mash, little pinholes, and you were kept in there, and um, no matter how much light you had, it was always dark. It was dark, and uh, and uh, when you were in there, you know you were uh, in the submarine. So I was in there uh, when I first, uh, there were my years in solitary. You know, I was put in solitary unjustly. Uh, my prison uh, record didn't call for it, and uh, I was kept there by uh, one prosecutor. I won't mention his name. It was my prosecutor back then, and he did everything he can to uh, uh, to make me tell lies about other people, which never happened. And anyway, I'm in the submarine, and uh, every cell has, uh, by, uh, by law, they have to have a sprinkler system. Every cell has a sprinkler system. And once in a while, it happens, you know, they have their own mind, their own timing. These sprinkler systems just go off. And what's in these sprinkler systems is not water. It's a water with some kind of solution. It's got, it's black. We call it black rain. As a matter of fact, I did a story about it. You can look it up called black rain. And uh, so this, uh, this black rain starts coming out. I mean, pouring out. And, uh, you know, when you're in the hole, you don't have much. you got a little bit of stuff. So that that's gone in a matter of seconds. And uh, so all you can do, you can't get away from the water. You're not getting away from the water. So, and incidentally, since it was the submarine, nobody rushed down there to turn it off. So we were, we were in this, uh, this uh, black rain for over two hours, just pouring out, pouring out. And uh, I was younger then, and uh, yeah, I uh, right away my uh, survival mode kicks in, and and uh, I just actually doing push-ups in this floors, floors getting flooded, doing push-ups in it and jogging in place, and uh, but I was with at the time I was with an older prisoner, and I could see after an hour starting to wear him down, starting to wear him down, you know. It's, uh, we were black to begin with, but his he was getting like his color was getting gray. A little bit, a little bit I could see of his flesh. It was starting to wear him down. So then I was starting to worry. You know, is this guy going to make it? So uh, what I did with him is actually uh, had to put him under the bunk, put him under the bunk, even though there was water, put him under the bunk so he can just you know get that water from stop beating on him because it was getting to him. So 
that's just the story. It's called the submarine, and uh, and it was called Black Rain. So imagine that, and the water was cold, and like I said, it had this black solution in it, and that's how we were. Now, when it shut off, was it over? No, <laughs> they don't come around. They don't come around with any uh, anything to clean it up. They don't come around with any mop or any uh, long squeegee, nothing like that. They come with nothing. It's your job. It's your job to try to clean that cell the best you can. And uh, and then that's the old the older guy. He was pretty wore out, so I did the best I could. I worked. It's happened about eight or nine at night, so I worked worked all night trying to get the cut. That smell was. Smell was the chemical smell of the black rain was something else. I did the best I can to try to clean the cell, and um, I never forget when finally breakfast breakfast comes pretty early and I'm uh, in solitary uh, before six, and and uh, I think that was the best breakfast I ever had in my life because it wasn't much. A couple of eggs looking green and yellow, uh, you know, some hash. Has browns that were really brown, some uh, some grits and uh, and uh, coffee, coffee that they uh, they come with a big pot and it's basically chicory, but it, it wasn't that cold, it wasn't that hot, but that had to be the greatest breakfast I ever had because it, by take getting something to eat and eating, I felt well, uh, I I'm alive, <coughs> I made it, I'm alive. So I mean that's. And the stories are stories are endless. They're, they're endless in prison. So you know, uh, like I said, uh, you have to survive. And how do you survive? You have to survive. There's something. There's something in all of us. There's something deep down in all of us that can make you survive. You have to find it. That's the problem. You have to find that that, that guiding light, and you have to reach down. You got to reach down, and you got to dig around inside your soul, and you got to pull it out. And once you pull it out, it's a shining light, and uh, then you know that uh, you're going to be reborn. But the trick is, how do you be reborn for decade after decade after decade? And like again, uh, the stories you're going to be hearing from me don't think I'm some kind of hero, great person, because there's better women and men to me that have died. And incidentally, ladies and gentlemen, you know, we always, the guys are always talking, but, you know, there's women that have suffered, like my dear friend Amy Provo from uh, Kandu. Uh, you know, she suffered immensely. She's just one one woman. There, there. You got Irma Allred, who just got out. Uh, right, right. She did, I don't know, over 20 years. Same thing. Just so it's, not, it's just not a guy thing out there. You know, women, women have been... Uh, Played with this incarceration, and you know, and uh, as a guy, I can I can frankly and boldly say, come on, most of these women are there because some guy uh, got them involved in something they shouldn't have been in, and a lot of cases like uh, uh, like uh, Amy and uh, Chantel McCorkle, these these women uh, did more time than the husbands. The husbands bailed out in some. Uh, in some ugly uh, way, uh, legal, ugly legality way, and left the poor, poor wife there. So you know there, there are stories too that uh, had to be told. Me and Amy thinking about doing a, uh, just was with her recently about doing a play. Uh, I incidentally I 
I, I learned how to write a vision. I became a prolific writer, and I taught. I taught writing. I graduated more creative writing students than anybody in prison on, on earth. And uh, you know, through through that, you you, you learn an awful lot about yourself, and uh, and uh, and uh, you know the hardships you've been in, and then you teach these other these younger guys to express themselves through words. So you know, prison is a river of stories, and that's what I'm here. You're going to be hearing some uh, some uh, stories. I don't know if they're great, uh, but they're interesting. Uh, they're interesting. They're real, and in my opinion, they're riveting. Well, okay, we've got a couple of uh, callers that want to have something to say. And remember, if you're listening to the show and uh, you're moved to uh, ask a question or or, or share a story yourself, um, all you got to do is pick up your phone and call 646-929-2495 in our or non-compliant Mary will get you up in queue and we will uh, be able to bring you if you got a question for uh, George Martorano or myself uh, or just something you want to share please don't hesitate all right we've got uh, Glenn Keeling he's going to come up first he's our one of our newer chapter coordinators in Ohio freshly chartered chapter and uh, Glenn's got a case going on and I believe we just have an update um, court was just today or yesterday. Glenn, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Joe. Thank you for having me on. Hello, George. <clears throat> hey, how you doing? Glenn, doing good. Um, well, uh, I'm still under gag order, so I can't really say too much, but uh, they rescheduled yet another pretrial for no. We go to court on Valentine's Day. Both Peggy and I are um, I guess they're going to start combining our case from here on out. Um, we both go to court on February 14th at 1 o'clock. They did take the ankle monitor off, so I'm not monitored anymore. Thanks, thanks. All right. Hey, you um, know what? We, we celebrate it when we can, you know. Uh, right. there's, there's layers and levels of freedom. And, you know, I was on bail for six years, so I know – the, the, the oppressiveness of that, but I never had an ankle monitor, so um, and I didn't want one, so I'm, I'm glad to see that you got that off. Right. Well, I mean, it was kind of uh, quite a few people. Well, the one probation officer, just an example, uh, I went in last week for one of my regular tests, and he was shocked that I had paid $12,500 to get out of jail, and I was on an ankle monitor, so he thought that that was a little extreme, but of course, when you, I guess, make the prosecutor mad and make them look kind of not like they know what they're doing, they get mad and they'll do what they need or want to do. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm glad to have the monitor off. I'm able to move about now and and do things and take care of stuff. Um, but yeah, again, we go to court February 14th at uh, 1 o'clock, and, yeah, I'm still under a gag order. How is Peggy doing? <laughs> is she doing better? Is she... Um, daily, she's getting worse. Um, this is not, is the outcome for her is not a very good case. Um, I can say that her attorney did say that he is going to push for treatment instead of incarceration for her. But okay, I don't. So you uh, know, 
and she was right. treating herself with cannabis uh, successfully. She was uh, uh, living a life that was functional, um, you know, not not in excruciating pain. She was able to to participate in life. Um, after they got raided, of course, um, she's unable to uh, participate. She's unable to medicate herself, and she's degraded. It's 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 um, attacking her horribly. So um, that's one of the reasons that we're you know specifically jumping in on this case, doing what we can. When you you know you see an innocent person um, just trying to medicate themselves. I mean you know how come Peggy doesn't get to put in her body what she wants? Um, I I don't have an answer for that. It's it's not right. Right. It is it is extremely unfair that that people. Um, after 80 years, you know, people are still being persecuted against and still going to jail over a plant. Um, it, it's not fair. It's not, uh, it, it's, it's very civil unjust, very civil unjust. Um, and to watch her on a day-to-day basis just go down and, and get worse is heartbreaking for me to watch it Um and, you know, seeing and dealing, you know, being, Joe, who you are, being a dispensary owner at one time, you know the the effects of what this plant can do. Uh, well, all the listeners here do know what it, it does for somebody. And without having that, it is, uh, it's almost inhumane to watch Peggy go from being able to enjoy life on a day-to-day basis and have the things that she can have to going to have me use a walker to get around, just getting around from going to the, from the couch to the bathroom um, is, is very heartbreaking to, to watch this, to witness somebody this sick going through something this bad, you know, over medicating themselves because pharmaceuticals was killing her faster than what, she's going through now. Well, you know, the thing is, is the more you work with this plant, um, you, you can't deny what it does. You can't uh, you can't unlearn what you learn. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I tell people I'm a nurseryman. I've been growing plants, um, you know, since I was a kid. And I, I would never see that it would be a good idea to go to war over a plant but I've been willing to fight for this one plant. I can't think of another plant I would fight for like I fight for this one. I wouldn't <laughs> fight for a geranium. Take away my geranium and cigar out of it. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna risk my freedom for it. But this plant does so much good for so many people. And right. um, Absolutely. The, the the cost of this, you know. I just saw another uh, little article Melissa Ragsdale who uh, fled her state, you know, she left Kansas to go to Colorado because her son was uh, literally dying from these uh, Dew syndrome uh, uh, seizures, and and now the kid's been seizure free. He goes to, but she had to leave her family and go go to another go to another place. It just it's 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 uh, it's, it's a travesty, and I think that that's why it's so important that people step up and and, and make a commitment to change, you know, to to, to do something. You know, I don't care what it right. is. Make a commitment to care. Make a commitment. You know, donate your four dollars and twenty cents a month for a membership, or 
or make a phone call or write a letter or, or you know, wear a ribbon. Just walk around with a ribbon. <coughs> Anything. You know, something that is shocking about this whole thing is, and if you think about it, it is we are gifted in our bodies with an endocannabinoid system. And the only plant on the face of the earth that interacts with that system is marijuana. Now, that is one of the biggest, cruelest jokes for us to have this in our systems and being denied to having this plant. You know, it's like it's like if you, you taking the minute hand off of a clock. The clock's still going to run, but it's not going to run properly. You know, uh, and we discussed this last week, that whether it's medicinal or whether it's recreational, we're putting something in our system that is already there that only acts with the cannabis plant. Now, you know, I, I mean, if we weren't meant to consume this plant, why would we have this system already built into our bodies? It, it is it's mind-blowing that, you, you know, people don't look at it on, you know, I can't say people because there is a lot of people that do get it and that do understand that. But there's the quote-unquote powers to be, the ones that are enforcing the laws that don't get this, that we have a system in our body that only acts with this plant. There's no other plant that I can think of that has cannabinoids in it. Well, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and, you know, like I say, I think that what we're doing, though, is working. You know, you, you've been a regular on the show now. Uh, you're participating. I, I think that had Peggy not reached out to us when you were locked up and we hadn't taken the call, you wouldn't be sitting here right now talking. And the fact that you're talking is reaching. We, we had over 5,000 people listen to the last show. And uh, we're, we're going to probably have... 7,000 people listen to this show. Each time that we do this, each time that, that this message gets out there, one person, two people, ten people, doesn't matter. Some people are getting touched. I have to think that every time we do this, at least one more person comes up and says, you know what, I'm going to raise my hand. You know, how about me? Can I help? Because we just got a new member uh, a couple of days ago, and her name is Martha uh, Logercio, and she's from Florida. And um, she signed up as a as a 420 member. I haven't reached out to her yet. I don't know how she heard about us. I don't know where she came from. Um, but I'm going to find out. My guess is that something somebody did touched her, and she signed up, and she's a, a new 420 member. We have our new um, uh, our chapter coordinators from Canada. They just renewed their membership. Um, they've, they've been members now for five years in a row, uh, Janice and Devin Davis. They, they run a a chapter up in Manitoba, up in the plains in Canada. And these two people wow. um, have together more people um, and, and supported cases all over Canada. Have you ever been to Canada? It's a gigantic place with a handful of people. And it's, it's crazy. There's like a, 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 a 200 square miles for every person in Canada. But these people have gotten out there, and, and, and they're carrying the torch. They're carrying the flag. And when I went up there this last summer, uh, we gathered people around. We went to the courthouses. We talked, and the light shining brighter. So I can't help but think that this is happening. Well, uh, Glenn, we're, we're we're quickly running thin on time, and I and I do want to give George some time to 
tell some more stories. And we got Tom Corby with the NorCal Report, and uh, uh, got right to make room for a few. So appreciate you being here. Hopefully, you'll be uh, on our call tomorrow. Um, and Absolutely. Special you want to add? No, I will definitely be on call tomorrow. Um, and again, I thank you guys very much for having me on and have and being there for the support that it, that the Human Solution offers. And George, thank you for your fight that you are doing going on with the, this plant. Well, as soon as I uh, get off the paper, maybe I'll come up and see you, uh, you and Peggy. Right on, absolutely. You're more than welcome to come here anytime. Thank you. All right, once again, Glenn Keeling from Ohio, um, and our new Ohio uh, Ohio chapter is alive and well. And uh, you know what? We're, we're, we're growing in all directions right now. Um, so, George, you know, um, you know, you're just getting a little taste of, of the people. Sometimes we have, you know, dozens of callers. Sometimes we have a handful. But um, there's that constant... Uh, constant drumbeat of a message that, that humanity, you know, we, we're the human solution. We're not the robot solution. We're not the, the, the book solution. We're the human solution. And, you know, humanity is a, a thing that's hard to find in, in, in the world, much less behind bars. Uh, you, you had a way to break through and, and express humanity through your writing and, and, and through your teaching. And, um, you know, how important is it? That people, you know, maintain their humanity. And, and, and well, yeah. When uh, you know, prison is a very old, old thing. Man has been caging man for centuries. And uh, you know, there's some great, great history with that. Uh, uh, you know, we had these the movies and the books about people being falsely incarcerated and suffering and suffering. But you know, uh, and then you come to the modern times, the times where we live, and uh, it's still going on. It's still going on. And uh, and uh, like I said, I, I became a prolific writer and director. I, drew, I directed a, wrote and directed an awful lot of plays and skits in prison. And there's one particular uh, uh, play that I'm going to do. And you have to imagine in this day and time where uh, there was a woman uh, in, uh, in uh, prison. I, I'm not going to label whether it was state or fed, but this woman was in prison, and she was a uh, she was petite thing, and I don't know how she fell through the cracks, but she went into the woman's prison pregnant, and um, something happened, and she fell through the cracks. No one knew, and she kept it to herself and kept it to herself. She's had some kind of mental anguish going on. I don't know what. I don't know if it was the family on the street. I, I just didn't know her. Didn't know the reasons. Uh, you know, uh, when you know when uh, someone frightened gets thrown in a cage. Uh, you know, being frightened escalates, and they don't think rational. Anyway, she kept the pregnancy to herself, this poor soul. And uh, can you imagine that? Night after night, she's laying there on that, that bunk with the door locked and uh, the cell locked, and she's pregnant. And what happened to this poor thing that she wind up uh, delivering uh, prematurely in the middle of the night, and come morning, uh, the child was dead after it delivered, and she was dead. And that's a true story, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, I believe some relative came out of the woodwork, and someone 
and uh, the Bureau of Prisons quickly settled uh, uh, with the settled uh, restitution, financial restitution for the situation. But that that's where the story should not die. That's where the story should not die. The story should be told, and uh, I'm going to be directing that and filming that uh, real soon, probably this year, and I want the world to see. Now, I'm not saying that... Uh, you know, what I, what I, all I do, my creativity, writings, and films, I'm not saying that we should hate. Can't hate, because once you hate, it clouds your thinking, clouds what you can do as an advocate. Can't hate. And I taught that in prison. When I went away, I was uh, a young guy, and I was put in the worst prison in America, Marion, Illinois. It was the first lockdown, totally lockdown a facility ever, a federal facility. I mean, you were there, you were locked down. Didn't even have a policy. It wasn't legal. Because if you know the, if you know case law, like I know, uh, it's called the Robert Strauss Supreme Court decision. Robert Strauss was the bird man of Alcatraz. And he was actually kept, kept in solitary. Okay? He would, no, he was sentenced to solitary. He was actually sentenced to solitary. And the Supreme Court overturned that, where you cannot, uh, be sentenced to solitary. And, uh, and my situation, when I was kept in solitary for five years, the only reason they got away with it because they moved me, they kept moving me. And more than one warden at different institutions used to come back into the hole and tell me, see, you know what, John, I don't have you in this hole. It's that prosecutor in Philadelphia that's doing this to you. And back then, the way the prosecutor got away with it, if there's something, anything happened in the streets of Philadelphia, whether it was violent, or something big, big criminal indictment. They he would say I, that I was under investigation. Even though I was in prison, I was in investigation for the incident, whether it was a violent incident or something. And that's how legally they would take me, throw me in the hole. And then actually there is, a, there is a, again, a, I don't know the case right off the hand, but in the 90s, I it was 92, the Supreme Court came down and said you couldn't, couldn't do that anymore. And then uh, naturally... Uh, I was already out of solitary at that time. I went from uh, 83 to 88, but the Supreme Court had, of course, they were continuing to do it, and the Supreme Court had said, no, no, you, this guy's already sentenced. He's already sentenced. He's already been punished enough. You can't just take him now. If you if you had infractions where you broke the raw, or rules of prison, you know, violence, violent escapes or something like that, then they had justification to put you in solitary. But I did 32-plus years without an incident report. My, uh, my prison record is stellar. Not only is it stellar in conduct, it is stellar in educational feats, etc. So, but again, uh, you know, hating, uh, I've seen so many prisoners, uh, you know, they just, uh, they either, they, they get a fetal position on the bunk, they give up, or they become violent, and they want to allow, lash out. You know, it's human nature. There's, there's some of us human natures are different. Like, like Craig. Craig, she has a great. He's not going to become ugly or mean. He's just trying to come home. Just a human being trying to come home with the help of human solutions. I'll say that sentence again. Just a human being trying to come home with the help of human solutions. So, like again, I'm here to tell you the stories. And uh, when Greg tells me, I, I mean. Uh, Joe gives me the green light, you're going to hear a story. <laughs> no, absolutely. In fact, um, you know, go, keep going. You, we've got a good 30 minutes, and uh, Tom Corby, 
usually is good for about five ten minutes at the very end of the show. So we got we got twenty minutes of un, un unfettered time. Uh, we definitely want to hear more. Well, my uh, I haven't been in California, ladies and gentlemen. I haven't been in uh, California in over forty years, and I've been speaking around the state. Uh, great, great people out here. And again, uh, you cannot hate. I have to thank. Uh, I have permission to come out here. I have to thank the individual. The individuals allowed that to happen. Uh, I'm out here speaking. Uh, I'm not indulging, and uh, it's just so great. It's just so great. It's just that. But again, it's just that. It's, there's this fear. Uh, I feel that there's a fear. There's still a fear with people in the cannabis industry. It's uh, it's why 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 we have to. I lived in fear for all those years in prison, and now I'm home. I'm still living under fear, and I already addressed my attorney to address uh, the courts that it's it's absolutely inhumane to take an individual where it's here her and keep them in fear for years and years and years. But the underlying stress factor is immense. Is immense. It can it can give you poor health. It can make you mentally deranged. Constant fear, constant, should I do this, should I not do this, should I do this, should I not do this. So, then we're the only country that does that. We're the only country that does that. Even countries that have, I've, I've met foreigners in prison over the 30 years, and some of them countries like Russia, etc., they have much more harsher prison conditions, but it doesn't last long. Don't last long. For I'm, I've seen situations where multi murders, multi murders, most they get is anywhere from 10 to 20 years in these uh, European countries. Uh, let's go. Uh, you can laugh about it. It's not laugh about it. What was his name? Mompoc. 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 He was the leader of the Cambodian uh, Cameron, Cameron Rouge. Uh, he had uh, two million people killed. Literally had two million people killed, uh, and he got 20 years house arrest. He killed two million people, ladies and gentlemen. He got 20 years house arrest, and he winds up dying after a couple of years in his own home with his own servants on the house arrest. Killed wow. two million people. They felt that to put him in prison at his age would 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 serve his purpose. Yeah, we so. And here we are, here we are, uh, putting people away, nonviolent first offender, and throwing away the key. And, you know, when you get somebody in their 50s or 60s, and you don't have to throw away a key. You can give them a 10 or 15-year sentence. You know, chances of them coming home are slim. Chances of them coming home. Again, I'm not, I, like I said, I lived in the Bureau of Prisons for many, many years, and it was very good, very good staff and like. Medical, the medical try to do the best they can, but you got to understand, ladies and gentlemen, the bus pulls up twice a week. When I first went to prison, the bus pulled up every six weeks. Okay, 32 years later, the bus pulls up twice a week, sometimes more, with all fresh intake guys and all fresh guys with medical problems. So the medical department tries to tries to keep up and. I did my job with the prisoners. Basically, I told them, uh, listen, 
eat right, exercise, keep moving. I don't care if you're if you're 26 or, or 76 or 86. Keep moving. And I'd like to share this with you. I did a survey. I worked closely with psychology departments over the years. I had very good rapport. I even had my own uh, where they would uh, say what I needed. I, 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 I put orders in through their budget, stuff that I needed to curriculum for classrooms, and um, I did a survey with the psychology department. Now, why wasn't the elderly, and I did this was all guys late 70s and the 80s, which was not too many on the compound. Why weren't they forgetting? Why weren't they showing signs of dementia at all times? And I did this one-year study, took notes, and I had uh, certain guys, elderly inmates I did the study with, and what we attested the study to, what the study came out to, ladies and gentlemen, was that they fended for themselves. No one was there to look after them. They had to fend for themselves. They had to get up and go eat. They had to get up and go to laundry. They had to go up and go to medical. They had to go get their comedy. They had to fend for themselves. Even though if they lived with the cellie, whether it was an elderly guy, a younger guy, they had to do things for themselves. So, and that's what the study was attested to. When you for yourself and there's no one there, it, it, they didn't forget. And I used to actually, with some of the older guys, I would walk in their room on a Monday with a paper clip and hide it in front of them. I would hide it in front of them and come back three, four days later and I'd say, where's that paper clip? And they all went, right? They thought, they paused a minute, but they went to that paper clip. So, uh, you know, prison, prison is a place where you can... Uh, you can do a lot of uh, learning, a lot of experiences, and uh, I do believe I do believe that the Bureau of Prisons. I don't I don't know about state system, but I do because they they don't they're not happy with the warehousing effect. They're not happy. They're not happy with it because they they can't really do what they want to do from human being to human being. Again, because all the arrests, bus pulling up, it's a nonstop situation. And now, uh, you know, the, I believe, I believe my, my, I had uh, an out, uh, uh, what was the right word, uh, a forensic investigator, forensic investigator, uh, Angela, very, one of the best in the country, uh, she uh, did a forensic investi- investigation on the cost factor of my indictment, court costs, incarceration. In 32 plus years, ladies and gentlemen, came over. $8 million. Imagine that. Now, how many mortgages that we could have paid to save the home? How many medical insurance that we could have saved? How many educational plans? Yeah. We could have helped an awful lot of people with over $8 million. And they kept me in, of course, course of over $8 million. Now, times that by tens of thousands that are languishing. Tens of thousands of money were just throwing away. How come, away. folks? How come? How come this keeps happening? How come we're still doing it? How come we're still allowing it? How come we're not outraged that this is happening? And and that's what, you know, that's a question we all need to ask ourselves. You know, why are we not moved to act? Well, maybe we are. Why are we not acting? Um, you know, George, this is something that blows me away. Of all the people that we've helped over the years, uh, probably 95% of the people come to us. Most of them are state cases because, uh, very few people find a federal case, as you know. Most people just 
take their deal, they cooperate, they rat on everybody they know, and nobody hears from them anymore. Uh, occasionally we get a case, somebody stands up and fights, and I've sat in federal courtrooms uh, across the country. But most of them are state cases, and many of them are cases in states where there are laws supposed to be protected. You know, we have cases today. Most of the time when people come to us, they participate while their case is going on, and then as soon as their case is over, whether they win, lose, or or, or plead out, they disappear. No longer to be heard from. They're not here to help anybody else. We even have people who used to be, you know, part of the organization. They just, you know, have family problems, whatnot. They're they're not doing this anymore. What causes you to care enough, or or, or to find it important to uh, continue to help this battle? You wouldn't have to do that. You could just go on your own way and, you know, live your life out. Well, it's the fear factor of People, uh, people, you know, they don't want to get involved in advocate for uh, advocate work. They want to go on. They want to be disappeared in life because fear. Uh, again, they're tired of living in fear. They feel they feel if they get involved in something, the fear is going to enter them again. What are they going to do to me? Are they going to raise my taxes, take my house, try to put me back? It's the fear factor. That's that's the sad part. Me, uh, I'm back doing advocate work. I started something called the Cannabis for Guns. It's not, it's nothing physical. When I'm traveling the country speaking Cannabis for Guns, where I'm trying to get uh, uh, local law enforcement to work with me, where we take the guns from these gang members and thugs, uh, young people, and you get, uh, you get a voucher. Actually, get a voucher from the authorities. You take the voucher to recreational states. Or, or, or most kind of only can done basically recre recreational states or the city government can actually work with the criminal statute, which says it on the website cannabisforguns.com. The criminal statute, basically in all our 50 states, is you can have an ounce or less, ounce and a half or less on you. So what we're trying to do is, uh, uh, I'm working with retired law enforcement. What we're trying to do is get that established. Now, what I do is create a mental deterrent factor. That's all I'm doing on the freedom of speech. It's like this, ladies and gentlemen. You go home and someone in your family, your neighbor's having a bad day, and you say to he or she, listen, relax, calm down, let's go have a drink. That is a mental deterrent factor. So this is what I'm trying to create in America, mental deterrent factor. And the reason I started this, uh, you know, I get up early. That's what prison does to you. Make makes you get up early. And in my city, Philadelphia, every morning, every single morning, People are shot. They call it the badlands. Two or three shootings, children in crossfires. I woke up one morning about a little over a year ago, and a two-year-old was playing with her dad in front of the house. Two, two young guys on bikes. They didn't even, weren't even old enough to drive. Come back, rode by an open fire, killed the father, shot a four-year-old four times in her back. This four-year-old will never be the same again. That's when I said, you know what, enough's enough. Enough's enough. So here's me, the 32-plus years. Uh, uh, I'm out there again trying to help, trying to do things. By just speaking. So I'm asking everyone out there, listen, speak. Have a format. Have a way to help by just speaking. You can speak anywhere. You can speak in the shopping centers. You can speak in a laundromat. You can speak getting gas. You can just... Walk down the street, someone smiles at you, someone smiles at you, smile at he or she. Stop and you talk and you speak. 
believe me, if everyone out there just speaks, takes the time to speak one individual day about the human solutions, just one a day, believe me, things can happen, things can grow. I'm not, I'm not asking anyone to be uh, as uh, far-fetched as me. I mean, I have to work with this new intervention thing. <laughs> I'm not asking you to be another George or actually another Joe. Uh, we're not asking you to take the lead. No, no. Okay, we're asking you to be yourself, just relax, and talk about injustice. Now, we got enough time that I, I you know, I'm sure you're probably sick of telling it, but you, that, you got a story that just is unbelievable. It happened up, I don't know, probably about 20,000 feet up in the air. And I, I heard about your story before I knew you. I read about it somewhere. I was like, so social media. Son of a bitch. Why would somebody do that? Why don't you tell us about what happened up in the airplane? Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it was uh, 2010. I had just lost again in federal court. Uh, incidentally, I'm the most appealed federal prison ever in the world, 32 appeals. And uh, uh, when you travel, you know, you're chained up and... Uh, you know, you know ahead of time, they pack you out. You know when you're traveling, so when I know I travel, incidentally, I used to travel across country change in a bus, and then all of a sudden, prop planes came in, and then now they fly around in these jets. So any given day, and ladies and gentlemen, across America, there's hundreds and hundreds of federal prisoners chained in buses or chains flying in the skies. That's America, hundreds and hundreds. I think uh, just the federal system... For the federal system to function, because they have they don't have the room, they have to keep, I believe it's up to 15,000 federal inmates in transit at all times. That that is fact. They have to keep them moving. They transfer you x amount of time to another prison. They have it estimated they have to have 15,000 in transit, because if that transit stops, they don't have the beds. They don't have the beds. They would have to go out and build ten prisons overnight. Or just anyway, let some go. I mean, you know. But anyway, back to the story. So when I know I got to travel, I stay up all night, uh, make myself extremely tired, work out. Uh, if I can have some, if I have coffee, I'll drink some. Stay up all night. The reason you want to stay up all night is because when you when you are chained up and finally put on a train, an air, a con air, it's called con air. When you're on the con air, you want to sleep. You want to sleep because it's not like you, uh, you know, there's flights that you take. You might have one exchange flight in your travels. or It's direct from point A to point direct flight. But some prison con air flights, you can land and take off seven, eight times that day. Seven, eight times. Easy. So, uh, so no, that's actually, when you land, you have to take off. So it's actually landing and taking off more than that. Yeah, I was like 14 times coming down and going up. Anyway, uh, I'm sleeping, and I feel something around my uh, my feet. And it was this long foot. It was this long foot, and these toes were trying to grab something. The guy shimmied out of his bus shoe. They got these cheap bus shoes. And I looked down, and I thought it was a pen. You know, I wear reading glasses. <laughs> so I thought I thought it was a pen. So this guy wanted a pen. And I looked down real good, and it was called speed handcuff key. A speed handcuff, speed handcuff key. They're about three inches long. They have a rubber grip, and it's a dual, it's a dual lock key. In other words, it 
unlocks your handcuffs and unlocks your leg irons. Everyone's in leg irons and handcuffs. So I know that this key is going to get me killed because uh, there's no prisoner coming out of his cuffs in the county of America. They have air marshals that have uh, laser beam sharpshooters. If they knew that key was near me and they knew if I was going to hold that key. If you hold that key, you're dead. They knew you held that key. The policies have to kill you. So I don't, I don't know what to do. Incidentally, the people behind me were uh, were Somalian pirates. I got nothing against Somalian pirates, <laughs> but uh, they were Somalian pirates buried in the federal system. They're never going to see daylight. So they 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 surmise that what do you, they're going to come out of these keys and commandeer con air and, and mid air. You're, you're not getting into the pilot right. cabin. You're not getting it in. Not a lot now, of thought went into you it. You got probably. these air marshals uh, with the laser beam guns. So I and he's persistent. He wants to get this key. So I'm I'm uh, I'm trying to tell him you're going to get us killed. This is, you will have us all killed. And it's the back of the plane. It's right past where the, the serving galley was. They don't serve you. This these planes are so <laughs> old. They're so old. There's basically 12 of us in this little section. So I knew I'm going to get killed, and whoever's near this key is going to get killed. So what do I do? I had to, for a split second, I figured, let me reach down. If I can reach down and secure it somewhere with this, well, these Samaritan pirates don't want to get it. So it's not easy going down handcuffs. you got to know how to do it. You have to move move them up as you can. You have to actually spit, spit on your, your forearm so you can shimmy the thing up there so you can reach down. Well, anyway, I get the key. I got the key. I know if they see me with the key, I'm dead. I'm dead in seconds. So what to do? Where do you, where do you hide a key on a plane? So I just said there was a little groove in the floor, and it was like the best toss ever in my life. It was a life or death <laughs> toss. I said, I have to toss this where it's going to land away from these. My, I tossed it there and it landed perfect. Perfect in the groove on the floor, and then I got the air marshal's attention. I said, "Listen, uh, there's your key. Get your key." And uh, and who got the worst end out of it? It was a panic because I directed toward the key. I was taken from the back of the plane to the front of the plane, strapped in a seat with Velcro around me. They have this ball. It's like it's like a fire hose with the end of it's Velcro, and they they tap it on your seat and they. Velcro, and I was Velcro like that because they had a question me where the key came from. But lo and behold, the key was dropped by one of the contract air marshals. Wow. Oh, so now uh, they all joined forces to protect him because he's his job. He's oh, yeah. he's, he's gone, and uh, they they uh, they questioned me and. Uh, told them just what I told you, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, when the plane lands, uh, I was I was the first one off the plane, thrown in uh, 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 with guards, taken to a county jail in Oklahoma, in the middle of nowhere, and thrown in the hole. And I saved the day. About two days later, uh, finally, uh, 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 federal liaison, that county jail... County jails in the middle of nowhere have what you call federal liaison. They're attached to the jail because now and then they get federal prisoners like me 
So the federal liaison came through there, and he says, "Is it? I heard this story. Is it true?" And I said, "Yeah, it's true." He said, "Well, there's no paperwork." <laughs> I said, "I gave a report." He said, "Well, it's missing." <laughs> she says, "Here's what I'm going to do for you." I said, "All I want my warden notified. I want my warden notified about what I did. That's all I want. I want my warden notified." But anyway, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I stood in the hole. I was treated like the victim, and uh, finally, uh, 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 the federal prison liaison, I forget what his name was, Foresight, he's Foresight, he said, okay, listen, we just just go back to your, we're going to ship you back to your prison. I'm not going to get involved with this. If you have a lawyer, let him. Anyway, it took me four years, four years to get the credit. And it made social media. It, like the week that it happened, it made social media all around the world. It took me four years to get the credit. They will not give me the credit. Finally, again, I have to thank someone, investigative branch of the Bureau of Prisons. You know, I was in federal prison so long that if a, guard, a guy started at a guard, years went by, they were awarded. I actually grew with them in their careers, and this one, he was an investigative a branch this a lieutenant, very good man, very honest man, and he pursued the investigation. He finally said, there it is, he did it. So, uh, again, was I angry? No. Was I upset? Of course, but I didn't let my anger interfere with the four years of intelligent uh, going after the doctor, intelligent going after the doctor. And that was decided. one of the deciding factors was uh, my, my release of Con Air, uh, the heroism, heroism on the Con Air hijacking, uh, the graduating of uh, 8,000 uh, students, and uh, and I, I argued a little legally uh, under the life no parole. So and then basically I just, you know, if you if you stay the course long enough, uh, I think uh, the Los Miserables, the book Los Miserables. The prosecutor relentlessly, uh, what was his name, Renaud, Renaud, the prosecutor, Las Miserables, a book written in the 1700s by DeVoe, uh, great writer. He wrote The Count of Monte Cristo, Las Miserables, and things like that, is that the prosecutor pursued this man all his life, relentlessly wanted to put him back in prison, put him back in prison. But the man and his pursuing... Every time he caught up to him, he found that the, this man was a good man. And everywhere he lived, and he did good things. And then it, it finally got to him so bad that the prosecutor ended his own life by throwing himself into the river. So, you know, I believe that if you stay the course, you look people in the eye, and you say and do good things, it should, uh, with the grace of God, it should come back and kiss us. Well, that's a, a bunch of great stories, and, and, you know, again, you're just barely touching on it. We're just about out of time, but i got enough time to bring Tom Corby, um, another hero. You know, and I, I don't use the word hero lightly, but I use it, I believe, appropriately. I think that anybody who does something exceptional, who's willing to be exceptional, is, is, is heroic. Anybody who's, who's willing to go outside of their comfort zone for humanity on any level, it doesn't matter what it is. And Tom Corby's a guy who uh, got locked up for pot, just like so many of us. Um, had a had a case. They came in, they raided him, they took his life savings, they dug it up out of the ground, 
they, they scoured his, his property out in the middle of the hills, and they found his life savings and they took it from him. And they, they forced him and his wife to go through a brutal uh, state case over nothing. This was a ridiculous case. And, um, you know, um, they ended up uh, settling this deal. <laughs> They're still finishing it out. But at the end of the day, uh, Tom won. You know, he stood his ground, and uh, they, they dropped his charges when it was all said and done. And Tom has been there for more people. I've watched Tom uh, go from, you know, as much as I handle the Southern California up into Central and Northern California sometime, Tom takes it from Sacramento all the way to the Oregon border. Just about any case that comes his way, Tom's there. He guides them, he teaches them, he supports them, um, and he's in there physically. Tom, welcome to the show. we got just enough time for your NorCal report. Tom Corby. Uh, thanks, Tom, Joe. There you are. And... Yes, and yes, am I on? Am I on, Joe? You are. Put the phone up oh, close thanks. to your mouth so we can hear you. Right, I, I'm right here. You can't see me. Yeah, yeah we right hear you. See you. <laughs> uh, you're good. Uh, and thanks, Joe. And, you know, I, I learned so much from you. And and also, uh, Becca and Mary and Lisa and the Coffee Party Radio Show to make this happen. How's that sound? Am I coming That's in great. okay? Got All it. right. So uh, I'm going to shout out George Monterano, enduring, enduring 33 years in Fed prison. Yeah, we and we wish him luck on getting his parole terminated. And uh, when we t- when we when we talk about legalization, right? How's it going in Washington with Lance Floor? A case coming up, a hearing coming up for him. So we want to get court support there now. How about California now, where it's supposed to be legalized? I don't know if you've heard, Joe. I know you know heard of Dana Beal. Uh, Melissa Balin uh, messaged me today that he he got busted today and he's he was in jail and I guess he got bailed out. That's about all I got so far. So that's up in Trinity County. Uh, so we're going to work on uh, getting uh, Dana some court support. Uh, I want to I want to say uh, safe travels, uh, Joe and Liz are coming up up here uh, to Northern California. Happy Hill, It'd be great if George could come too. Uh, going to be here a couple of days. I'm uh, here. Hold up there. Yeah. And folks, so friends, that want to stop by and hang with Joe, meet Joe. Uh, you're welcome to swing by Friday and Saturday. Uh, it's tentative that Stacy Sites with the cannabis will be up here Saturday. So uh, it'll be the usual potluck, and uh, we'll have meetings, and uh, most of the time we work on cases. Uh, big, big, big John DeBlanc, one of our top members up here in NorCal, uh, sorry he couldn't make it. He's down in Houston. Uh, he took a, a whole whole stack of your uh, or pamphlets, and he's going to go to four different uh, events down there and share uh, the Human Solution International. Uh so we're going to miss John DeBlanc. 
but I think Doc Allen's coming up. Uh, when you when you come up, Joe, if you can bring some of your your pamphlets on uh, critical pain relief brochures, we could sure use them, and they're great products, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I, we'll, we'll talk separately on that, but yes, I will. <laughs> right. Still in the uh, beach, Tom. <laughs> Frank and Ann here, and he would like to say a few words about how he got his case dismissed. So here's Frank and Ann. Hi, right, Joe. Frank. How's it going? Good, to, good to hear from you. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. I look forward to seeing you. Uh, doing good. I'm uh, just trying to help help everybody else out with their, their cases, just like uh, Tom and Bob Jared and, and Donna and everybody helped me. You too, Joe. That's how we do it, brother. That's how we do it. Yeah. yeah. But I got a real interesting case. Uh, my buddy, for like 20 years of mine, uh, he was uh, fishing, and uh, he, he got encountered by a park ranger, decided to mess with him, and he's just fishing by himself, not harming a soul, you know. And uh, so he proceeded to mess with him and uh, looked at the water and found what he thought was uh, marijuana. And so they proceeded to arrest him and make him take to his truck where they wanted to uh, take his truck apart and search it because he would not concede to a search and let them search. And he said no, and they proceeded to tell him, well, they're going to tear, I'm going to tear your whole truck apart and piece by piece. Because, and so he finally, under duress, he let them search his truck, and kind of like you, the amount of marijuana they they found in the water was only point three nine grams. Oh God! Yes, oh you you can have an ounce without anybody blinking. There's not even a, it's not even a crime to have an ounce. Why would they care about a, a less than a gram? That doesn't make sense. It's a crooked county and. Sometimes. So he, so they proceeded to go further and tear his truck apart, went through it three, four times before they finally found a pipe. <laughs> yeah, because pipes are so dangerous. Yeah, you know, they hurt, they hurt people all, all the time. You know. But, uh, yeah, he's uh, he's doing with a bunch of unjust things there in Kansas, and I've turned him on to Human Solution, and I'm helping him work his case. Uh, he didn't even know what discovery was, just like me when I went, went through my case. So, and that's how he found out that it was only point three nine of a gram that he's being charged with, and paraphernalia, and I think uh, disturbing the peace or something. I'm trying to throw at him. Reaching his What about scaring uh, yeah. the fish? Right, exactly. The fish probably have more rights than he does over there. Well, you know they do. You know they do. Well, Frank, here's the the plan. I just want to share some of this unjust system that we're dealing with. It's all over the land, and that's why we're here. We're here to to support the people that are going through it, and we're we're here to hopefully inspire and educate them to stand up and, and break through it. You know, it's only by fighting that you have a chance to win. 
if you roll over and, and, and take what they give you, um, that's exactly what you're doing. So, um, you know, I appreciate that you're stepping up and, and and helping Tom. Tom has carried the load so so almost by himself sometimes. He's got a good team around him, but he definitely needs, um, you know, a couple of good hands. I'm glad you're there helping. Um, I'm planning on coming up tomorrow. I fly in tomorrow um, around 6, but I'm going to head up and see Mary um, over there by Tahoe tomorrow night, and then I'm either going to come in late uh, tomorrow night or I'll stay the night at Mary's and come in in the morning, one or the, one or the other. I'm not sure which yet. Oh, that's fine, Joe. Yeah, that's great. Just let us know. We'll be ready. Sounds great. Well, that means based on that, I'm going to be staying the night at Mary's. <laughs> and then we'll see you guys in the morning. All right, you guys. Well, right. uh, we're running over time. I want to give George the last word here. Uh, anything else you guys want to want to say to close out? I love you guys. I love you, Liz, Kathy, everybody down there. And uh, safe travels and look forward to seeing you. Thanks, Joe. All right, we'll see you guys in a couple of days. I'm looking forward to it. All right. All right, George, parting shot. All right, guys, thank you. Thank you for for having me, Joe. I want to leave uh, the audience with this uh, one sentence that I live by, and uh, that is always remain loyal to your nightmare of choice. Always remain loyal to your nightmare of choice. Wow, powerful words. Well, once again, I want to thank everybody for being a part of the show today. I want to thank... uh, Lisa Wildridge, our vice president, who's, uh, you see, going back and forth behind her. She's been making this uh, video feed uh, possible and, and sharing it, feeding it. Please uh, participate as you can. I want to thank Mary Donnelly for uh, uh, screening calls and just being amazing. I want to thank George Martirano for everything. And I want to thank the Coffee Party and the Coffee Party Radio Network for giving us a place to be. And we will talk to you all next week. I am Willie Nelson, and the Willie Nelson Teapot Party and I endorse the human solution, supporting cannabis prisoners because no one should go to jail for a plant. Little things I should have said and done, you were always on my